Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today, we have big wins for Ashanti and Hulk Hogan, plus so much more. Stick with us on Justice is Served. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is Served. Hello, Shaka and Shannon. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Justice is Served, where we talk about the legal news around the country this week. Uh, we have some stories of big wins and some losses, some really interesting stories that, like, you think a, a show or a movie could be the basis of these stories, but they're real-life legal stories that we're covering here like we do every week. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, my name is Chelsea Galicia, an L.A. lawyer, and Shaka Smith. I'm Shaka Smith. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Shaka Strong. And then one of my favorite regular guest hosts is <laughs> Shannon Myricks, a UCLA law student. Uh, welcome back, Shannon. Thank you. So let's start with the reason why we're using this song. Shaka, this guy, Bobby Shmurda, we, we talked about before, like, for some reason, I do not know who this guy is. He hasn't come out with anything recently because he's in, been in jail for like a year and a half now mm -hmm. on conspiracy to commit murder charges. Um, he's in the news again this week because of a claim that he's been targeted because of the lyrics in his music. Yes. <clears throat> so somebody give me the backstory to this because I am not very familiar with this story. Well, Bobby Smurda, you know, he, he's a rapper who has um, anti-police raps and he believes as a result of his raps he's been targeted. Um, specifically, there were three officers, um, NYPD officers, um, that found a gun uh, that they allege was Bobby Smurda's and he's saying that those officers have a disciplinary history and had harassed him before. And now he sought to get the disciplinary history of those officers released to him so he could point to um, their past conduct that would be indicative of them framing him for The this. police are not going to hand that over very willingly. Yeah, and a judge recently said um, he was not allowed to get those documents. Okay, so what do you think about this, Shannon? Do you think he's right about being targeted? I mean, don't a lot of rappers speak about the police, speak negatively about the police? Do you think that there's something special about him? I mean, I, I think there's a possibility that he is being targeted. He did mention that one of the female officers involved in arresting him over the weapon had made an allegation about a drug, about drugs being sold with another suspect, but later retracted her statement. So yeah. if he were to able, if he was able to get access to, you know, the disciplinary records of police officers, he may be able to establish a pattern here. And what's more, he's saying that the officers that arrested him in 2014 had harassed him prior to that as well. So it's the same officers he's dealt with in the past. Over and over. The part for me about this story that was interesting is a theme that we're seeing a lot with musicians, rappers in lawsuits, whether they're civil or criminal, and that is that in their music, they proclaim to be very rich and rolling in it and making it rain, and then when they get to court, they plead poor. And he has been in jail now since 2014 because he hasn't been able to post bail. Uh, his bail is set at like $2 million under the assumption that he's worth about $20 million. And he says, well, no, actually, it's probably more like $427,000. Well, yeah. And it should be more like fifty dollars to $100,000 bail. Uh, are these people getting themselves into big trouble by claiming to have all this money they don't have in their art? Or are they just getting to court and 
claiming that they don't have the money when they actually do. Well, I think it's the duality of rap culture. And um, that duality is they appreciate that sense that you're from the streets and you've lived this life and people like to see the story of having a hard life and making it. And then there's that aspirational part of rap culture that you want to show the Bentleys and the houses and the cars. We have the same thing with 50 Cent, who recently exactly went through that, his yeah. bankruptcy and then having to say, well, this money is really prop money. It's not the money that I really own. Uh, so it, it doesn't surprise me that he's worth far less than um, might be assessed at the outset. Also, Bobby Schmurter's career was sort of put on hold with this arrest. So yeah. far, he only had the one hit so far, uh, Hot N-Word. And uh, usually an artist with their first single, they get in debt just getting that single out there from the marketing, the publicity. Paying for the beats is a big debt Expensive. that rappers take yeah. on. So he is very unlikely to, I, I would say, even have four hundred and twenty-seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would think that he probably is pretty tight on money, and I think that uh, rappers singing about how much money they have is just part of the lure and the appeal of rap music. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's kind of silly to exaggerate. I get that part of being an artist is creating a fantasy or illusion that you want people to buy into, but then it, but then they make it look like it's really their life, yeah. and then it's really not, so then we get a whole lot of people following it thinking that that's really the good life, and it's like a well, yeah. complete mirage. It's an illusion. It doesn't yeah. really exist. In the age of social media, we have that merging of storytelling and what's real, and so now you can't really tell. And this comes up again and again in the <laughs> cases that we're going to go over today. Uh, Ashanti, that yeah. was an issue. The Hulk Hogan sex tape, that yeah. was an issue. Uh, so yeah, let's see. Before quickly, we get to those. When it comes to Shmurda, or Bobby Shmurda, I don't understand why they aren't releasing these disciplinary records to him or having someone have some oversight of the records and release to him what's pertinent for his case. Uh, I don't see why this job as police officers that they have that is very important and it requires a lot of responsibility while there isn't complete transparency. And I think that's what bothers me most about this case. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of these <clears throat> histories of officers behaving badly and it was not uh, like it wasn't released to the public and then they do something really terrible like shoot and kill somebody and then even still it takes a while for us to see it until we're the media is really shining a light to it yeah so I, I sometimes they're released years later after yeah. like freedom of information requests are processed and things like that so I think talking about it putting the pressure on law enforcement agencies to be more transparent will over time have the effect hopefully of making oh, them more transparent. Yeah, I think if right now every police officer in the United States knew the disciplinary records would be made public, you're going to see a change in attitudes and behaviors in every police department. I, and from the police side I can see well, like hey that's not really fair you know you get in trouble at your job and I don't have a right to find out about it so there's sort of a double standard for them that they're not allowed to have like the normal uh, disciplinary well, yeah, actions, I, like. But I consider them guardians. I consider them. They have a. They have a higher role in society. Yeah. And so I think with that role comes that oversight um, from the community. And also, as a public servant, your responsibilities mm. to co the community and the transparency that we're talking about is warranted because we are essentially paying you, uh, yeah. taxpayers. We need to know what our money is going to. We want to make sure it's going to officers who aren't targeting innocent people. Yeah, politicians and have disclosures. We as lawyers have disclosures. P people can go on our respective websites and look up our disciplinary history. Well, why is this not something that's open and available to, um, to us with the police departments? Good question. Good question. All 
All right. So now we're moving on to a really tragic story of one police officer being killed by another. Uh, so this has brought up sort of this issue. It's like blue lives matter unless that blue life is also black. Mm. That's what some people are saying about yeah. this story about Ja'Kai Colson, who is a 28-year-old undercover police officer who came across like a really terrible chaotic scene and was shot. So at first when I saw this story, I was like, wow, this does not look good. A white police officer shoot, deliberately shoots at and kills a black undercover officer. He was dressed in plain clothes, so he looked like, you know, just somebody on the street. And, you know, th this, this really is going to go down terribly for PR and, and things like that. Then I looked more closely at the story and about how much of a drama was unfolding when he was shot. So apparently this guy who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia or, or believed to have schizophrenia, Michael Ford, comes up to the police station and starts shooting at cars that are going by, including an ambulance, in an attempt to have to like kill himself by police gunfire. He essentially went there to commit suicide by being shot by police officers. He was accompanied by, and this is so disgusting, his two brothers who went to the scene with him, but they stayed in a car to videotape everything on their cell phone. So I'm curious to see if one day we will see what those videos show. But allegedly what happened is that Michael Ford was shooting at cars, police officers come out, and an officer, Ja'Kai Colson, rolls up to the scene, plain clothes, no bulletproof vest, anything. He starts to shoot at the suspect, and then he is shot and killed. Do you think that the police officer who killed him is going to bear no responsibility, like it was reasonable given the circumstances that he shot him? Or does it look like this may be a, a scenario where the white officer assumed that the black guy was just a suspect because he looked like the suspect who was shooting? I think one thing's for sure is that I think the Maryland Police Department is definitely going to be on the side of the officer. They have been, they are closest to his position. They've been in a, you know, position of experiencing a chaotic scene, as you described, where bullets are flying everywhere and you can't necessarily see or know who is the good guy, who is not the good guy. So it's very likely that the Maryland Police Department will have sympathy for this person. And already and, the uh, police chief has been talking like, Officer Colson put himself in a situation that he wasn't prepared for. Almost to me, sounded like it was blaming him. Certainly. Uh, and I, for me, though it may not seem like this on this show, but I do give deference to police officers and their judgment at the scene. You know, they they have they're involved in a chaotic situation. So I I don't from the outset do not blame the officer that shot um, Officer Colson. But it does lead me to believe or wonder whether or not that shot was still motivated by like a racial schema, whether or not he had this idea that, you know, here's this black person, he's more likely the assailant than not, so quickly make the snap decision. And I think we need to see just more kind of sensitivity training or real world training where officers need to understand that a race is not necessarily tied to a certain behavior. Right. I think it probably starts in the academy when they're using as target practices, we've seen that they tend to use pictures of black people. And so it subconsciously trains somebody to associate that with the suspect. Yeah. Um, is Hopefully it's a I don't know, nothing's really a simple fix, Yeah. but it's so tragic that that is what killed this really promising officer who was an undercover narcotics 
<laughs> officer who you know served the community for four years, really loved his job. And as we discussed last week about Ferguson and that whole consent decree regarding how they're going to retrain their officers to look at people in the community as members that they protect and serve rather than potential um, offenders. And I think that that kind of training would lend itself to better police policing. No. So as for the suspect and his brothers, all three of them survived the, the shootout. The suspect, Michael Ford, he was hit, but he survived the shoot the shooting, and then they're all charged with murder. Is it fair that uh, the two brothers who were sitting in the car, who actually have, were, it's believed that they knew in advance what Michael Ford, their brother, was planning on doing, didn't do anything to stop it, but they didn't actually participate in any of the shooting. They were sitting in a car, taping on their cell phones what was going on. They have been charged with murder. Is that fair that the brothers will be held responsible, but the officer who actually shot the officer may not be? Well, typically, felony murder, there's a knowledge requirement when it comes to felony murder. Yeah, I think we should explain that one because that is not really obvious to people. I didn't know about it until I went to law school. So basically it says if you go to a scene knowing that a felony or a, like a dangerous activity is about to go down and somebody dies in the commission of that felony, you can be held responsible for it even if you didn't pull the trigger or weren't directly responsible for it. But you usually have to be in the undertaking of the felony itself as well. Right. So in this situation, I don't know if they took other steps to aid in the commission of this felony, but if they didn't, they really shouldn't be charged with felony murder. Right. I mean, there for sure I mean, should be a crime that if they really did know that their brother was mentally ill and had this specific plan and didn't do anything about it, but there really is no responsibility or duty for those brothers um, to say anything to anybody. I, feels like it should be, but like, how do you really legislate that? Yeah, though, I mean, my, my initial sense is they probably undertook more than just ha going there to videotape. Uh, my sense is they probably aided him maybe with a gun. Uh, I don't know. We don't have those facts yet. So That's I'm assuming true. there must be additional facts to uh, warrant that kind of right. charge. So they are um, sitting in jail for the murder charges and the um, six counts of attempted first-degree murder, nine counts of use of a handgun in the commission of a felony, felony and additional charges. So these brothers that just sat in the car yeah. may get it just as bad as the guy who was pulling the trigger and yeah. who intended to die. Uh, really terrible story. But, but it would be great to see some footage from dash cams and audio. Yeah. So, And that's the problem with our police departments. These things often don't, don't get released. You have to go to a judge to get them released sooner. Well, we're going to, I mean, we know that pr probably there are two videos that At, definitely exist yeah. and we'll definitely share those if those are released um, because it will be very interesting to see if the version of events that we've been told is really what's shown on those videos. Yeah. All right, so now on to Ashanti's big win. Her stalker was found guilty 13 years after he started the behavior that she interpreted to be stalking and harassment. So this was Devar Heard, 37 years old, who represented himself at this trial that was in New York. Has a bit of a history with um, the singer. He sent her mother basically a dick pic back in 2009 and spent jail time for that. And then he violated a restraining order a couple years later by 
taking a picture with Ashanti's sister who didn't know that it was him. And so because of that, he's been sitting in jail for a couple of years. And then just this last week was convicted of stalking. The first thing that Shaka was confused about was like, how did it take so long? You know, all these years had gone by. The poor guy's been sitting in, well, poor, I don't know, (laughs) sitting in jail for all these years. Well, he hasn't just been sitting there. This was actually the third trial. The first one ended uh, with a... um, We had two mistrials, right? Yeah, the first one because the juror got sick. Yeah, and then we had a hung jury in 2015. Right, and so this time, finally, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty. The real interesting part of this case was the fact that he represented himself and he got to ask her, Ashanti, directly some cross-examination questions. What kind of questions did he ask uh, Shannon and do you think he did well at representing himself? Be careful. I think he had moments where I, I, I think he may have had some sort of a legal career in his future had he not been deranged and the questions I'm referring to is that he was trying to speak to her public image and he spoke to the fact he asked her um, so you give lap dances on stage right but I don't get that and then, what does that have to do with anything I think what it has to do is try, he's trying to establish that the tweets that he sent that some people would view as inappropriate were appropriate given the public image that she garnered and she put out there her and Twitter right. is yeah. public she has highly sexualized pictures and performs in a highly sexualized manner so when he sent tweets saying hey, I want to put my face in your genitalia (laughs) and I want you to put wrap your legs around my head when I do it would would seem appropriate to someone who gives off the image that, hey, I'm a sex symbol. And these tweets were public back at her and she never blocked him. So that was his big thing. She if she was really disturbed by them. She should have blocked. So it makes complete sense to me that he's saying you portray this over sexualized image that you're putting out in public. I then, in public, respond to it with things that I believe are of a somewhat appropriate nature given the image, and you've never blocked me. So, so far, so good. Where he went wrong is that he insinuated that they had in a relationship, and he said uh, the sex between us was, he said, you know, the sex between us was a very emotional experience. On and both sides. And I think that's where he went bad, and yeah. I think Ashanti crossed her arms and closed her eyes and just looked away, what, like, what, but she this did, is not but something. I, I guess, would you say, like, what planet do you live on that that didn't happen, right? But she didn't say that, or I'm not sure if in opening statements or closing her attorney made it clear that they have never had any kind of um, sexual relationship, friendship, anything like that, that the only reason these two people have anything to do with each other is that he is basically an obsessed fan. But he wasn't accused of um, doing anything to her physically, showing up at her house or... It was all over social media yeah. and text messages. Don't quite know how he got her phone number, but somehow... And her mother's phone number, yeah. for that matter. So for sending these text messages and social media um, Tweets, signs yeah. of affection, I don't know if that's what he thinks that they were, uh, he's going to face about a year and a half or four years in jail. Does that sound fair for tweeting? Well, I, I think given the circumstances as a whole, I think it does sound fair. It sounds like he was a threat, having violated the restraining order, and maybe we don't have further violations because he's been in jail. And so given the history, I believe it's appropriate, but it is also a scary thing to think that 
sending several tweets to a public figure could be, you know, perceived as stalking. You could get convicted for stalking. Well, I mean, it's not like he just said, hi, how are you? I think you're beautiful and I'm a big fan of your music. But I I constantly see inappropriate tweets to celebrities. I constantly see inappropriate comments to celebrities. If you go on Instagram, any celebrity over 10 million, you're going to see a bunch of comments are just um, highly inappropriate. Yes. To think now that if you were the commenter and you left an inappropriate comment on five to six pictures, then now you might be convicted of stalking. That, to me, is a little bit scary. Yeah, it seems that New York must have a different kind of stalking standard than we do here in California because the three of us were like, in California, this probably would have turned out differently. The other interesting thing that Shannon had to say earlier is that this was actually perhaps a win for the stalker. Not a loss at all, actually. I mean, he got to be in the room with the woman that he loves that he's loved for over 10 years. He got to cross-examine her. He got to rehash all their sexual moments and got to quiz her. That occurred only in in his his mind. mind. That that occurred only in his mind, but he got to live out his fantasy. He had her face-to-face. She couldn't run away. She couldn't avoid him, and Mm -hmm. she even had to answer a majority of his questions. Yeah, because he could have pled guilty and then there was a chance he could have been let out for time served. Yeah, now he, he faces didn't want one. Out. Yeah, now he faces one and a half to four years. He wanted to see Ashanti face yeah. to face, and I I thought it was strange that she even appeared, at least in California, with a lot of stalking cases. The victim doesn't show up. I know it's celebrity cases. Just the attorney show up. So I'm wondering if New York requires her to be there. She just yeah. wanted to face him, maybe, and uh. take control yeah. over the situation. I mean, I or doubt it. Bec- he might have called her to the stand, too. Oh, yeah. yes, because he defended himself. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So maybe defending himself while it's usually not a great idea, maybe this was the point. <laughs> so then the whole question of this guy seems clearly deranged. Why hasn't anybody gotten him some mental health? Instead, we allowed him to play lawyer for himself. Yeah, and I- you, you wonder what happened between 2013 and um, now that why hasn't he been rehabilitated? Has he had ongoing mental health services? And I think that's the problem is we focus on this sort of punitive way of dealing with people rather than a rehabilitative way. Oof, yeah. I um, I, I, I would hope for, for I, I don't know, I kind of see this both way. I, I would be really disturbed if I got those kind of messages, tweets, but then again, don't a lot of celebrities just ignore them? I, when, why didn't she block him? I mean, I, I get how disturbing the tweets are in light of violating the restraining Perhaps order, but why didn't she just she, simply... If she blocked him, that would make him angry and make him try and reach out to her in other ways. There's also a matter of evidence gathering. So if this started in phone calls and then his phone number was blocked and then he's starting it on tweets to build your stalking case, sometimes you actually have to keep letting them call you and text you and tweet at you so that once you present your information to the judge, it'll be overwhelming that this person is out of control. All right, so it may have been a legal strategy. All right, so the whole um, defense of I was just reacting to your public persona was the same defense used by Gawker Media in the case that they just got their asses handed to them. Um, They were sued by Hulk Hogan. Uh, Gawker somehow got their hands on a sex tape involving Hulk Hogan, whose real name is Terry Bollea, uh, who was doing it with his then best friend's wife. Mm -hmm. And Hulk Hogan says he, you know, was suing for invasion of privacy and emotional distress, all the good usual stuff. And Gawker said it was protected by First Amendment right. It was newsworthy. 
even though we're like, how is a sex take newsworthy? They argued that because Hulk Hogan went around publicly talking about his sex life on talk shows and even like on Howard Stern, that he inserted his own sex life into the public sphere, therefore making this sex tape newsworthy. The jury did apparently not buy it. Was it, did he even stand a chance? Do you see any well, logic behind that argument? I think Gawker stood a chance when they started to argue that after the tape came out, he celebrated it and he used the publicity behind it to kind of further his career and his persona. I think where they went wrong is saying that, you know, before this, this is this is the public person that he was, so us releasing the tape was no big deal. I think that's problematic because he still didn't give consent. They could have at least positioned themselves better if they had just, you know, worked yeah. on the fact that Hulk Hogan loved the sex tape. He loved that it was out there. Yeah, as we know, celebrities have a lower bar to invasion of privacy. So basically, the general idea or rule is nothing is private where you should know or reasonably expect to know that it could be public. And celebrities have a higher bar for that because right. they are public figures. But what one juror said, um, Selena Stevens, that was very important, she said it really turned on the video because when you watch the video, it was clear he did not know he was being taped. So in this particular situation, there was no reason to know or have reason to know that this was not going to be anything but a private situation. You know, I think Gawker may have tried to even intimate that he did this tape with some knowledge to get himself a little bit more fame at the time. And right. so I think the tape itself showed that wasn't the case. So not only did he win, and this has been like an ongoing saga for many years. The tape itself was originated in 2007. A lawsuit. First, he sued the friend whose wife he had just been involved with, and then that suit settled in 2012 for all of $5,000. And then somewhere along the way, it, it made it so that he, uh, Clem was his last name, I can't remember what his first name is, um, did not, could not testify in this case, had asserted his Fifth Amendment right in deposition. Uh, as to how the tape was was made and released and all that that sort of stuff. So uh, Gawker thinks that they have a really great chance of uh, winning on appeal. So first of all, the, the verdict itself was that uh, $115 million just in compensatory damages. And then a few days later, it added a $25 million to that amount to bring it up to $140 actually 0.1 million dollars and yeah they were lucky to to get that that punitive award because in florida the supreme court usually tolerates two to three times the um compensatory damage award well part of how that i think was calculated was the judge instructed the jury on how much each of the defendants were really worth yeah. so nick denton who owns gawker media is like worth i think according to the judge about 80 million gawker about 100 110 something like that and the poor editor who was originally responsible for being part of it had no assets and $27,000 in student loan debt. Well, doesn't that sound like a familiar American story, so you say. And then using apparently that knowledge, the jury came to a figure that would uh, basically put Denton and Gawker out of business. Yeah. They really not only took Hulk Hogan's side, but they really wanted to punish yeah. um, Gawker 
and what they're doing, which, you know, Gawker and Nick Dunn have been really open about. They they like this whole idea of total transparency with celebrities and people in the news. Uh, I think Nick Denton said of himself he's a little bit extremist about that. Mm. Um, do you think that this would have been different if this was tried in California, if if Hulk Hogan would, was a resident of California and this had been tried here? I think the outcome would have been the same, but I think the damages would have been different. I think that the punitive damages in particular would have been less. I think California courts are used to dealing with these sort of media matters. I think they have a better handle on the private citizen versus a public celebrity. And I think our bar for celebrities to prove, you know, um, injury due to a sex tape would be higher than in a state like Florida, which is a bit more conservative. Uh, the people are conservative. This so it's like more offensive that mm -hmm. a sex tape was released yes. to somebody in Florida than it would be to people in California. Yeah, but I, I do think I do think there's something there with that punitive damage award because they could have gone for 300 million, and the Supreme Court of Florida would have probably gone for that. They typically are fine with that that kind of award based on the compensatory damages. So I think they really went for a number that would be easy to pass muster by any judge. So there's no remitter or no no bringing down the punitive damages here. Although it's you know Gawker is very convinced that they will win on appeal yeah. because a lot of information like the jury was not able to hear that previous courts had found that the um, sex tape was in fact newsworthy that uh, Clem was not able to testify so are basis like these gonna help Gawker reduce or completely turn over the verdict I think if, if Clem's testimony is, oh, Hulk Hogan totally knew about it. Let me show you this email about him setting up yeah. this sex tape Bam. and telling me to make it look like I didn't know, but I do know so that I can release it and have my career come back, yeah. a la Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Like, this is not unheard of. And, this then, and then Hogan goes on the hook for lying under oath, you know, so. Yeah, and I think people are like, well, that's really weird, an ally. Uh, Hulk Hogan and this Clem guy because originally Hulk Hogan said he was completely blindsided by being set up by his sort of best friend that it was videotaped and then also he claims that the friend convinced him to sleep with his wife so they were sort of in on that and and According according to the wife's testimony at the trial last week, she said that this happened before, that um, her husband was set up for her to sleep with other men because he was, a, I think it's called a cuckoid, which is a um, husband who likes yeah. cuckoid. Cuckold. Cuckoid. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for educating <laughs> me on that one. <laughs> that uh, he was a husband who likes to watch his wife have sex with other people. So if Hulk Hogan knew that that was the arrangement, how did he think that the husband was going to see it? Because he wasn't in the room, so he would have had to, to have it recorded. Some, yeah, but I, I, to me, I would think he he doesn't know, and we haven't well, seen the tape. And the reason I think he doesn't know is based on the juror that said she saw the tape, and that's what changed the jury's mind. That was really what affected them was that it was clear from the tape he didn't know he was being he the conversations he had were not indicative of anyone that knew they were being videotaped. And then what do you think about the fact that he speaks so publicly about his personal sex life? Does that make it then public domain to talk about and that things that come out about it are now newsworthy? To talk about, but every celebrity's sex life in some way is newsworthy. Whether or not you, you violate their privacy by posting it, absolutely. So yeah. that's what he said in an interview post-verdict that 
he doesn't mind talking about it, but it's another thing to see his yeah. own naked self um, being yeah. viewed by like seven million people on the internet. So uh, this one is going to be an ongoing saga because there's no, you They're know, Gawker's not just going to write a check for $140 million yeah, and they then can't. <laughs> it'll be done for. So yeah. it'll be years and years probably before anybody sees any money from this. Yeah, but I do think it's good to establish that, that line of privacy when it comes to celebrities and public figures. Yeah. So there, I mean, Gawker's having to pay for the increased brand awareness or value to Hulk Hogan that's 15 million dollars and he's going to be paid for about five dollars for each view that occurred on Gawker's site and other ones even though Gawker doesn't really control those other sites um, which is another 35 million dollars and then 60 million for emotional distress uh, this is along the lines of Aaron Andrews absolutely so I I I I was surprised by that. Maybe, and maybe this is an unfair bias. Maybe to, I, I, in my mind, I assumed that a woman was more traumatized than a man would be oh, by this. Chelsea, I, come on. I certainly think that's the case. <laughs> Society on. definitely has tougher repercussions on a woman who displays her sexuality. Well, so I would, I, I would definitely think a woman would face a lot more emotional because distress. Because Erin Andrews got fifty-five. Yeah. For just, I mean, she was a total complete victim. She was just naked in her hotel room after a shower. What? He, he, he was perhaps in a situation where he was sleeping with a friend's wife so that the friend's wife's husband could see it. Well, it seems it, a little it, it, less it, emotionally if we, if we, if traumatic. We believe, if we believe, as a jury here believe, that he didn't have knowledge of the tape or that he was being taped, he's just as much a victim, if not more, than Aaron Andrews because he's doing more than Aaron Andrews. Uh, I don't think, when it comes to emotional distress about seeing yourself nude in public with that many views, I don't think gender matters at that, at that stage. I think it's such a broad violation of your personhood. Yeah. that it's just as equally offensive. And I'm wondering why, or maybe there is, and we're not hearing about it, the woman who in the sex tape, why is she not also suing Gawker? And yeah, that that we I have no knowledge of that, why she is yeah, not Yeah, that suing. I'm unsure of. I know she's divorced her husband, so they're no longer together. Yeah. She, but if there's any evidence that she knew, but um, Hogan didn't know, that might be right. the yeah. answer. And that might be the answer that she knew. Okay, so... We're going into a very different kind of uh, conversation now. I, I don't know. Oh, wait a minute. We've got some golf to talk about. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Well, DraftKings. If, if you guys are interested, we have the Masters coming up. Um, golf's first major is right around the corner, and you can play one-week fantasy golf for free at DraftKings.com. Just pick six golfers before tee-off, stay under the salary cap, and rack up points for streaks per hole performance, tournament finishes, and more. Outscore the competition, and you could win big every tournament. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Fantasy golf contests begin when tournaments tee off, so get to DraftKings.com now and choose your golfers. Use promo code GEEK and play for free. That's promo code GEEK, G-E-E-K, to play for free now. Only at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Thank you, Shotgun. Thank you, DraftKings, for supporting on. our show <laughs> so we can bring this to you free every week. All right, mm -hmm. so now um, a dramatic shift in the, the topic of conversation. There's somebody suggesting that it is time to start throwing judges in jail who have essentially created debtor's prison out of poor people who cannot afford their tickets for minor violations and infractions. 
And this has come because the Department of Justice actually sent a letter to judges having to remind them that it is unconstitutional to fine somebody more than they can actually afford to pay. I actually did not know that this was unconstitutional because it seems like it happens all the time. <laughs> did you guys know? Yeah. I had no idea. Well, I mean, you're halfway through law school. Perhaps <laughs> it's more understood that you didn't know. Maybe we were told at some point, but I, I did not know. I. I knew that here in California, if you can't pay, you can do like community service yeah. instead, but perhaps that's not available anywhere. But what we do know is that many people all over the country are in jail because they can't afford bail, fines, things of that nature. And we saw that that was happening in Ferguson. In fact, this letter went out to judges in the same week where Ferguson and uh, Ferguson figured out their new plan for how to fix their broken police system. So were you on the side of, yeah, you know, maybe we should use this law that we currently use on police officers and prison guards who abuse uh, prisoners or civilians or whoever they abuse, this section that allows us to throw them in jail, to also use that against judges who are putting people in jail for their inability to pay these fines. Is this a good approach? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a it's a great approach. I think a lot of times judges don't realize the practical value or the practical consequences to what's happening to some, someone's life. And so they set these bail amounts maybe based on a history or a certain standard they have set for themselves without thinking about the practical matter. And they they're what they're supposed to do is just ask the person. They have to m make an, some kind of inquiry into the person's ability to pay. Mm -hmm. So even if they just asked, they'd be covering their ass constitutionally. <laughs> yeah. But apparently they haven't been doing it. It seems like uh, judges either don't care, or just sort of skipping over that step. What do you think is a good approach to fix this problem? I mean, I, I agree with Shaka. I don't. I don't think jail is beneath these judges. I think it's important that we consider um, the financial situation of some of the litigants that come through our courts, especially because this is for things like traffic tickets. This is like running a stop sign that can end up costing you up to five hundred dollars, right. depending on how you end up proceeding through the process and why should you end up in jail and then lose whatever job you have because you cannot pay. Like it, it puts you in this cycle. Right, and um, then you lose your job and and so not only that but then I also think as a taxpayer about the thousands of dollars that we now have to pay to put somebody through the system to house somebody in jail because they didn't pay a couple hundred dollars fine that is just not worth yeah. you know m my money so I think that this well first the DOJ has sent a letter reminding judges hey just a little cheat sheet here about the constitutional issues that you should remember uh, some people are saying, well, this is so widespread and it's so sort of almost unnoticed because this is in lower courts. Oftentimes when we're covering cases, we're covering cases in the higher courts up to the Supreme Court because that's where everybody's interested in. Nobody's yeah. really looking at the- Local townships. It, and yeah. Exactly. And so it's hard to know. I mean, there's no real statistics, numbers on, on how often this is happening. That this is happening, though, that we, we do know across the country so often that, what, are we going to throw every judge in jail? Well, I, I think the judges will start, once one or two judges get thrown in jail, exactly. they'll start to catch up. I, I mean, I've been fortunate, I guess, to work in major cities. 
So I always see these judges give the instruction about what are your finances, wh what can you pay. Um, you have this, and the fines are always ridiculously large, but they still make sure that person has a way or a path to pay them, and they can leave the court for a, a very small offense. Right, and I think California does this because of what Chelsea mentioned. We can't afford it. Overcrowding is a serious problem in LA County as well as other counties in California. Right. However, there are counties, and I think it was mentioned in an article in which a retired circuit judge wanted to bring light and brought light to the issue. He was at a White House meeting about excessive fines, and he wanted to bring light to the fact that he felt like this court, this county was like a cash cow. And uh, judges responded, "Well, this is not fair to rich people. Right. I mean, we can't, we can't let rich, we can't let poor people pay less, and we make rich people pay the, you know, right. the That's, base fare. Yeah, like, sort of gross to hear. But yeah, that was somebody's. I mean, I think this is similar to um, the doctors who are now being prosecuted for overprescribing pain medication. We covered um, maybe a month or two ago." Yeah. That doctor who is the first one in the country to be convicted of murder for overprescribing painkillers that eventually killed some of her patients. So somebody will, you know, be the unlucky example judge and perhaps have this happen before all judges sort of wake up and pay close attention to this and, and stop doing this. Yeah. This is really damaging to um, our taxpayer money, but also the faith in the system. I mean, it just is uh, its part of a larger problem that I think would be fixed if judges started to face some consequences Absolutely. like the rest of us. Um, and then finally, we have a story that I call, was this no shit or holy shit? Yeah. The confession of a former aide to President Nixon talks about the real cause or the real motivation behind the war on drugs. So I want to just read the quote by John Ehrlichman. He said um, that the Nixon campaign and the White House after that, so Nixon campaigned in 1968, I know that a lot of people listening um, don't, uh, were not alive then, I were not either, <laughs> but he basically said that they had two enemies, anti-war left people and black people. And that was the entire reason for making drugs illegal. That way they could arrest leaders that they didn't like, raid people's homes, break up meetings, vilify them. So, and this interview was done many years ago, but it's only now uh, coming to surface. And this is going to be, appear in an article in the month of April in Harper's Magazine. So when you read this, did you guys think, oh shit, that is huge, like this, I mean, yeah. wow, or no duh, we've known this all along. Well, I, I was shocked. I, did I think that was one of the motivations behind the drug war? Absolutely. But did I think it was so widespread and so top-down, Nixon himself was yeah. pushing this? And it wasn't like yeah. a motivation, it was the motivation. Yeah. It wasn't like an unintended consequence or like a side that consequence they okay that they with. were willing to deal with. No, it was the whole reason behind it. I mean, it's certainly campaign strategy. Um, sometimes the best way to unify people is to find a common enemy. At the at, During this election, white middle class was the key voter. How do we scare them and activate them and get them out to the polls? Okay, villainize black people and anti-war hippies. Yeah, so, so that, basically that they would have hated all of us here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all, right, all right, so not that surprising, but hopefully this will now, we can you know start talking about how to stop undo this war on drugs. Yeah. It had a terrible reason for 
beginning in the first place, and it has been a terrible disaster. Everybody agrees on that, and now it's about what we're going to do to remedy that. And hopefully we can acknowledge systemic racism. We can, yeah. It's here. <laughs> it's and been, also yeah. think about campaigns and how these messages operate and what happens when people like this win elections right now. Senator Fred New, uh, Ted Cruz has said that he wants to police Muslim neighborhoods in the United States. Right, following the attacks in Brussels yesterday. Which is yeah. very familiar to Nixon in the war on drugs, a.k.a. black people and hippies. Yeah. Right. Uh, very scary how history can repeat itself, especially when we're not educated on what has happened before. All right, so that is going to conclude today's episode. Thank you so much, Shaka and Shannon, for being here. And make sure to join us next week on another episode of Justice is Served. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio, Instagram at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood, Hollywood redefined. redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.